We are in the Gospel of Luke and continuing there and find ourselves in the beginning of chapter 12 and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7 together as they're printed on the other side or the front side of your, your bulletin handout before you. This is God's word to us this afternoon. Follows on the heels of Jesus uh, speaking to the Pharisees and the lawyers. And it says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are of more value than many sparrows. I, in many ways, love passages like this because they present before us the folly, or at least the apparent folly, of our faith. God has truly, has He not, chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. Uh, as many of you probably do, I occasionally will read some of the worldly wise opinions of the men of the world in uh, publications like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, or the Journal of Foreign Affairs. And whenever I read the, those, those works, uh, or uh, some of the articles in those works, I have never run across anything that's quite like this. Where else could you find a passage that could be summarized with a sentence like the following? Avoid leaven by pondering sparrows and numbering the hairs on your head. Certainly not in the Wall Street Journal or the Journal of Foreign Affairs. It is simple, even silly language but yet, it is the very language that the Lord our God chooses to, to communicate to us His profound, His profound wisdom. When the words of all the public pundits and sociologists and economic gurus and all the worldly wise men and their thoughts have been forgotten, people will remember this. You are of more value than many sparrows. You is the, he speaks to you in this way. He communicates like this in these, this simple language for us. He wants us to understand. And so he brings high heavenly realities down to earth so that we, you and I, might hear and remember and heed his words. We left Jesus last week in the house of a Pharisee. He was invited there to a meal, and you'll remember that he 
failed at the beginning to wash his hands before he sat down to eat. And of course, the Pharisees saw this and they were appalled that he would not follow the custom of washing hands. And this served our Lord as an opportunity to teach the Pharisees something about what true religion is and its nature should be. It is not as we heard last week, mere formalism. It is not, as one commentator calls it, play acting. It is more than just the washing of hands. It is the renewal of our heart. True religion is concerned not only about the outside of the vessel, but the inside as well. Jesus has made it abundantly clear. We heard about it clearly last week. But nevertheless, Entering into the next section in this next chapter, the danger, it seems, remains for the people of God. Like leaven in a lump of dough, it is present and it is able to spread. And so Jesus, instead of being silent, lifts up his voice as this great crowd we read about here gathers around him. In verse 1, it says, many thousands of people, it's a great crowd, gathered together like a concert and wanted to get near to him so much so that they were trampling one another, it says. Myriads pressing into and towards the Lord who speaks to warn them. And I also think to winnow them. That is to separate the wheat from the chaff, we might say. And so in the hearing of all, he speaks. He began to say to his disciples, it says, first... And I believe that first, he means both as of first importance. The first thing that you as a large crowd need to hear is this. And secondly, the first ones whom I want to hear this are you, my disciples. Beware. Beware. Because in a crowd like this, you're in danger. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is, he says, hypocrisy. This is the danger that Jesus alerts us to. And he begins first by warning us of it and then by giving us a defense against it, which will be our two points, the the danger and the defense. So first, the danger. It's here called, very clearly, the, the leaven of the Pharisees, which I think communicates something to us about the nature of the danger, does it not? It's using this very normal, everyday thing to describe that the danger of the, lev- of the Pharisees is that it is something that spreads and is easily circulated. This is particularly true of the nature of leaven in those days. This is not the kind of thing that you go and get a packet of at the grocery store like you get yeast in our time to put into your dough to leaven it. No, this is, this is the kind of leaven that happens when you leave old, wet dough out in a room and it picks up from the air the natural leaven so that the dough becomes fermented and and sours so that it can leaven the rest. We still make sourdough today and so we know something of this. And then of course having such old dough, if any fresh dough comes in contact with that old sourdough, it itself takes on the characteristics of the sourdough and leavens throughout. The old dough leavens the new. And as it is written in Galatians 6.5, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. So Jesus is saying the danger of the Pharisees and their attitude is like that. It's like leaven that can get in and disperse throughout the whole. So we were taught that the way of the Pharisees has the effect then of yeast. It can contaminate and corrupt 
and should, like leaven for the Israelites, be understood as something that you should purge out of your house. They know what it's like to purge leaven out of their house. They do it every year at Passover. And so to hear language of leaven would be familiar to them. But he doesn't stop there. He adds this other thing. He tells us specifically what he means. The leaven of the Pharisees, he says, which is, he says, hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. It's a Greek word that has in mind an actor on a stage. Literally somebody that is underneath or behind a mask. And so it includes all types of formalism in religion, all pretense, all play-acting. But I think that it communicates more to us than just that. It is something, like acting is, that is done before the eyes of men for men to watch and see. It is for an audience, and the audience, in the case of the Pharisees here, is the crowd. The myriads who trample one another. I think this is important because such acting, to think about it in this way, does not exclude sincerity. They can sincerely desire to appear before men to be godly and religious people. They desire to appear righteous before either men or a god of men's making, which in in a way is the same thing, of course. It is the fear of men masquerading, masked as the fear of God. It is piety, godliness, which has its root not in the fear of God, but instead in the fear of men. And that begs the question, of course, of us, does it not? Where does my piety have its root? What is the life that motivates my religiosity? Do I do what I do to appear to others to be godly and pious? Why do I, why do you come to church? Why do you sit down at your Bible and pray? Is it so that others will look at you and say, there is a godly man or woman? Or even maybe, is it so that you will see yourself and think that of yourself? Do we do what we do to appear godly to men or to seek God through those means? You see, it is a real danger. And Jesus warns us of it. And he commands us, beware. Beware. And then, I think he adds the next part to help us to provide us a motive to obey his command to beware. He says in verse 2 and 3, Nothing, he says, is covered. Why should I beware? Because nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden. Not one thing that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark, it shall be heard in the light. Whatever you have whispered in private rooms, it shall be proclaimed on housetops. All hypocrisy, Jesus is saying, of all kinds will be exposed. And I think that we actually know this. We know it because Jesus says it here, of course. But I think we also know it because of what his word has produced in our society. Just think about it for a second. Think about the word Pharisee. When you hear it, you cannot hear it without taking on the negative connotations of the word. No one hearing Pharisee or thinking of a Pharisee wants to be a Pharisee. But why do we feel this way? In the ancient Near Eastern world, in ancient Judea, people would have really wanted to be Pharisees, but not a person in this room wants to be a Pharisee. No matter how well acquainted we are with the Bible, we know somehow that that word is a bad word. And it is because, of course, they have already been exposed. 
The covered things that they covered up have been revealed. The hidden things have been made known. Well, how? By the coming of Christ. His word and work have served to bring to light the hidden reality behind the pharisaical show that was so loved in their world. None of us any longer is deceived by them because Christ in His first advent has exposed them. He has lifted their skirts, to use the language of the prophets, or or laid bare the foundations. And all see that the Pharisee is made up in his heart of hearts in rejection and hatred of God, for they murder his son. And as it was at the first advent, we can be assured, so it will be at his second. When he comes again, in the brightness of his glory, what will he do but expose every hypocrisy? The inner workings of the heart of every man shall be proclaimed upon housetops, he says. We must all, Paul writes, appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And some will hear from that seat these words, Away from me, I never knew you. There are those whose name, who name the name of Christ and do so hypocritically in our world. And like leaven, their ways can spread and such, such ways will be exposed by God's coming at His second advent. So then, you see... There is a danger, and it is a serious and weighty danger. Listen to the Lord. He warns you. He warns me. He warns us all to beware. That's the first thing, the danger. And then secondly, note the defense He provides for us against the danger. We need that, don't we? We do. First, He says, beware. And then second, in verse 4, He adds this, I tell you, my friends... Hear him speaking kindly to you. He doesn't call you enemies, but calls you friends. He gathers you out of the crowd and would identify you by his word, with his words, as friends. My friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. See, our Lord tells us explicitly what He's calling us to when He calls us to beware. He means for you and I not to fear men. Don't be afraid of them. The worst that they can do is kill your body, is what he's saying. Now, of course, having heard the Bible and read through the Bible, most of us are really familiar with such an idea that we don't have to worry about such things. But such a declaration is a wild thing to say if you think about it, if you're not used to hearing it. He tells a large crowd that they could be killed, but that's not the worst thing that's going to happen to you. You you may die a bloody death at at the hands of men that hate you, but there are worse things that could happen. You might be crucified by Romans, but that's not the worst of it. Not at all. You see, that is a revolutionary idea. Something worse than the worst thing that you could possibly think of could happen to you. Something worse than death. Worse than the thing that every man lives his life trying to avoid could happen to you. Yes, says Jesus, and that worst thing, and your consideration of it, is the beginning of your defense against the leaven of the Pharisees. He continues in verse 5. I will, he says, warn you whom to fear. Or better, I will show you. I will set before your eyes by the words of my mouth whom it is 
that you should fear. Fear him after he is killed about who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Notice he doesn't even na- name who he's talking about. He just says him. Him who is known not by a name but by his actions. That's what it says. He's the one who does what? Kills. He is the one who casts into hell. He is the same one, I think, that is spoken of earlier, who also reveals. He's the one that makes known the hidden things. He's the one that brings to light the things that are in the darkness. And He is the one that causes to be proclaimed secrets on the housetops. He, the omnipresent one, the all-seeing, the all-knowing one, the one in whom you and I live and move and have our being, the one that we all know is there and with whom we all know we will have to deal. Not some idea of God, but the living God, the one who is active and upholding and maintaining all things by the word of his power, who is near and not far away, the one who is here and who is not silent. He who is one with Jesus who speaks. Fear Him, Jesus says. And then, as He had done previously with the warning of danger, He does now with the defense. He gives us a motive to obey the command to fear. He commands us to fear, and then He tells us why we should do it. And I think it's interesting how He does it. It's a little unexpected. He does not paint a picture of something scary. We'd expect such a thing. We might expect expect some quaking mountain and fearful darkness and trembling or a a, a great hulk of a being, kind of a monster with muscles, something you would see in, in pictures from India. No, no, he doesn't do that at all. But this, verse six, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God. Sparrows? Little birds? No pagan would ever build such an idol to instill fear into the hearts of men. No, No man would think that was the way to make people afraid of the one with whom we have to do, but Jesus does just that. He turns your attentions to birds. Little ones. And I think He does so because He knows that we have already begun to tremble at His prior words. And He would tenderly, tenderly, press that beginning of a fear deeper into us, but in a way that's a bit unexpected for us. Yes, he says he can cast you into hell, but notice, notice he remembers sparrows. Birds as insignificant as a penny on a sidewalk that you notice and walk by and forget about as soon as you saw it. That's what he says. He remembers them. And I think that that teaches us something about God, does it not? He is not only tender, but he is well acquainted with the very things that you and I would ignore. He notices what passes our notice, which means he notices things about you that you fail to notice about yourself. Why? Verse 7, he says, even the hairs of your head, they're all numbered. He pays closer attention to you than you pay to yourself. His knowledge of your life is far more detailed and meticulous than your own assessment of yourself. None of us knows or can count the number of hairs we have on our head any more than we can know the location of a single sparrow out there in the trees of Savannah. 
I, I once stood beneath a, a, a friend of mine who was fixing a hole in the ceiling in a building that we were in. It had rain, had rain and the ceiling had collapsed. And so he was putting new drywall up in the ceiling. And as he did it, you know, there was the seams that he had to patch up with mud. So he's up there on a ladder and he's mudding the ceiling. And as he's doing it, he, he's so intent on what he's doing, he doesn't realize that these globs of mud are falling down from the ceiling. And I'm underneath and I'm catching in a bucket the mud. And then when he's all finished, he hops down off the, off the ladder and he looks up and looks down and he, he was very proud of the fact that he had done such a good job and not made a mess at all. Right? He was unaware of something that I was aware of. And, and as that happened, I thought to myself, how many of the things that I think I have done that are good are in the end such a mess that God had to come and clean them up and I didn't even know it? How unaware I am of myself. And that, I think, should have a profound effect upon us. We may think that we can fool God, but there are parts of us that need to be accounted for that we do not even know are there. We should, that should affect the way we understand our sanctification even. We don't even know what we need to be sanctified for in its fullness. It's hidden from us to some extent. There are hidden sins. There are consequences of actions that we thought were holy and good that are in fact soiling us in the presence of God and we don't even know it. But God, he says here, doesn't forget. God has numbered all of them. Hence, the motive you see to obey the command, fear, fear him. In this way, you see, Jesus teaches us about the danger and provides for us a defense. But he's not done, is he? There's something more he adds at the end here. One last thing. Having taught us to fear, our fears he would relieve. At the end of verse 7, he adds a last command. Fear not, he says. You are of more value than many sparrows. Fear not. Why? Shouldn't I, you've given me every reason to fear. Why should I not? Because he who knows you better than you know yourself is the same one who sent his son. He who knows your proclivity towards hypocrisy, he who knows your hidden sins, freely gave his son for those sins to save you. Though your sins are as numerous as the hair on your head, God has numbered each and every one of them and laid those on His Son. He has bruised Him for our transgressions. And so, He calls you to trust Him. Set your hope upon Him. Look away from yourself and to Him and fear not. Your value is measured, He says, in His Son. With that in mind, I think we can have one last admonition placed upon us from the text, even as we sung it. Go. Go and tell it on the mountain. Shout it from the housetops. Make known what has been revealed to you. Show others the light that is brought into your darkness. Enlightened it. Let your light shine. Because the Pharisees, you see, they practice their hypocrisy to hide their darkness. But you, you true child of God, you may be tempted to follow them, but when you follow them, you may be finding yourself hiding not darkness, but the light that is within you. And Jesus would say, beware of doing that. Ponder the sparrow. Number the hairs of your head and take fresh, fresh courage because you are of more value 
than many sparrows. And he knows you're coming and you're going and you're rising up and you're lying down and we'll be with you wherever you go. So go, tell it on a mountain. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are thankful to you that you are the God who reveals yourself as well acquainted with our ways in such ways that cause us to tremble and yet in the end they also bring us profound comfort. Lord, we pray that we might be strengthened and rejoice with trembling before you, the living and true God, and so walk with you in this world as your witnesses strengthened, enlightened with your light. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.